Well, I very much appreciate the opportunity to be a speaker at the uh, summit this year. I've always loved going to the summits, and I think they're the place where, you know, if you don't get excited about doing Invisalign when you come to a summit, something's wrong, because I always leave a summit, you know, really excited, and I always see uh, well-treated cases, and I go back to my practice and say, you know, I'm never doing as much as I should be doing when I come and see what other people are doing, so it's, it's exciting to be here. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of uh, basic disclaimers here. Number one, um, I always have to tell anybody that the things that I'm getting ready to tell you may not be lockstep with um, exact protocols that Align gives you for treating cases. There may be some things that uh, are a little bit off of that, and I just want you to know anything you hear, if you say, gee, that sounds great, I need to go back and do that, you certainly do that at your own risk. So it's up to you to, to treat your patients. Um, also want to let you know I do have a financial interest in a couple of things that you may uh, hear me talk about, but I do speak for Align Technology and work on their uh, clinical advisory board. I, when I get up and tell you I do a lot of Invisalign in my practice, it's not because I pay less for my aligners. I pay for my aligners, what everybody else does. Um, I do work with Henry Schein and ortho organizers. Um, also have developed the number one selling orthodontic app on uh, iTunes. There's 732,000 medical apps on uh, iTunes and the orthodontic app we've got is number 132 and in the orthodontic world it's number one by a mile. And then um, I also have a, a company that's called Smile Assist that does digital treatment planning. So now you know that. What we're here to talk about today is uh, class two treatment with patients and what I'm going to do is kind of hopefully give you a perspective on this whole category. We kind of throw it out there as class two and it makes it sound uh, somewhat difficult, somewhat challenging, and somewhat uh, something that you should be afraid of. And what I'm really going to try to do is break this down for you and, and look at this from the perspective of not just class two, but you know, there's multiple components to this class two, and they can be pretty straightforward evaluated so that when you're talking to patients about possibly doing Invisalign, you know, you can look at it and say, well, yeah, these are things that, that we can certainly handle and these are things that are going to be more challenging, but the goal is to give you a better understanding on what, what we mean when we look at class two and then where Invisalign fits in in that. Um, so we're going to look at things that, that are required to actually treat class two. So if you're talking about not is it just a class two, but are you going to actually try to treat and correct the class two, what things are involved in that, and, and how can you try to get your most success from doing that. And then, of course, we're going to talk about, as mechanotherapy, we're going to talk about Invisalign being the tool that we use to treat this class two or possibly correct it. Now, there's a big emphasis here where I use the word correction. So you're going to hear me say correction, correction, correction. But we're also going to talk about, you know, does the class two need to be corrected? and where does that fit in with everything. So we always want to talk about, you know, why, why do some people have class two? Where does that come from? And when you're talking about just the eruption of the teeth, it really comes from how the pressure are placed on the teeth as they start erupting. So that's the number one cause of teeth not being properly aligned and being class two is just how they erupt in the mouth. So we're talking about a developmental eruption problem for the most part when you're talking about jawbones being pretty well aligned. When the jawbones are not well aligned and there's a skeletal pattern to that, um, it largely is going to become from genetics and inherited patterns with a little bit of embryolic, 
embryologic development. That's by far the largest component of this. So, yes, the apples don't fall far from the trees. If you see mom and dad that have a class two skeletal appearance, a little bit retruded in the mandible, a little bit prognathic in the maxilla, yes, the children, if you see them at a very early age in the dental chair, you can start talking to mom very early on that, you know, they're probably going to have that type of malocclusion developing. Um, Going down largely from that, you have functional problems that can compound the genetic problems, and then really going down from that are the genetic syndrome. So the functional influences in genetic syndromes really augment what is really already a baseline uh, embryologic pattern that's inherited from the parents. Um, but that being said, and when we talk about this correction versus non-correction, and you're looking at etiology of class twos and where they come from, you know, it's very interesting that it really doesn't matter what the malocclusion is, but once growth has stopped, growth and development has stopped, you know, most malocclusions are very stable. They may not look good, and yes, they may lead to some restorative problems that need to be taken care of. There are problems with malalignment, but it doesn't say the periodontium is necessarily stable, and we know that occlusion can handle to that, but once the occlusion does find its fit into place, it has been shown that it is relatively stable and it is going to stay in that position. So in other words, the malocclusion, once the growth has finished, is not going to change to a different malocclusion. It's going to be stable. It may not be the ideal, it may not be the most functional, and it may not be the best for the periodontal condition, but it is going to stay relatively stable once the growth has quit. So when we talk about treating orthodontic problems, um, the order that it's generally done in is, yes, take the clinical exam, the health history and the records, which leads to looking at this prioritized problem list and solutions to individual problems. So I'm going to stop there for a second because this is the point where you really have what we heard about just in, in the lectures before us. We need to pay attention to the patient's chief complaint. You know, while we can come up with a problem list that may be class 2 molar, class 2 skeletal, you know, all of these other problems, that may not be the hierarchy on the prioritized problem list because that may not be what the patient's chief complaint is. When I teach residents and we go through this exact process and we say, let's look at everything and come up with all the problems that we can come up with, I always tell them that if the patient's chief complaint is not number one or two on your prioritized list, you've got to redo your list and put that up at number one or two. You have got to address what the patient's chief complaint is. And that's something certainly that, that, that you have the ability to do in your practice is get the chief complaint from the patient and find out what's bothering them. And while we could call this you know, a class two case that's got a huge skeletal component and whatever, but their chief complaint is I don't like the gaps between my front teeth or I don't like the, the alignment of the front teeth. That can be number one on the prioritized list and that can certainly be treated with Invisalign and should be treated in your practices if that's what the patient wants to, wants to do. So again, I, I really like to focus on really look at the prioritized problem list and then look at the solutions to the individual problems. You don't have to look at it as this global thing of, oh, it's a class two, I don't do that. No, you, you look at the individual problems and you say, yes, there are certainly things here that I should be able to treat and do well um, with Invisalign or practice. So after you have a, a defined problem list and the order of things that you're going to fix, traditionally, 
the idea is to come up with a treatment plan and then select what you're going to use to treat the patients. Now, when you talk about doing Invisalign, I think one of the things that always made this hard for orthodontists to grab their, grasp their hands around is because it's really an inversion of this. You know, what we have with Invisalign marketing to patients and, and we marketing to patients to come into our practices doing Invisalign, you know, you have a patient that sits down in the chair and they don't sit here and tell you why they're here. They sit down and say, I'm here to get Invisalign. So they, they're starting with, I want, I want this mechanotherapy and then I want you to reverse do all of this and make that therapy fit my malocclusion and treat me. So it's, that's why I think it's kind of hard as orthodontists for us to, to start wrapping our hands around this, but really nothing changes. All we do is, is we sit back and we look and say, what are the reasons the patient's here? How can we address those? And yes, primarily we're going to try to use Invisalign because that's what the patient has come in asking us for, or we're going to recommend Invisalign because there are some inherent advantages to using Invisalign in some class two cases. So yes, that, that's kind of the way it's traditionally been looked at. So let's, let's take for a minute the way the patient's gonna present in our practices and kind of the, the quick evaluation that we do when we walk in to do an exam. And it's something like this, you know, and, and again, this is really cheating textbooks who devote chapters to diagnosing malocclusions but this is a very simple but straightforward way to think about class two malocclusions. And it is this, you know, when I walk in the door and I say hi to a patient or parent of a patient I'm looking in, I'm trying to assess very quickly if they have class two, is it more of a dental problem or more of a skeletal problem? And you don't have to have a CEPH to diagnose a dental or skeletal problems. You can do that from just taking an initial look at them, looking at the profile, is it a long face, is it a round face? There are things that you can certainly identify and you don't have to be perfect, but you can just in your mind, you can say, this is more of a skeletal problem, this is more of a dental problem, and a lot of it can be done by the clinical exam just looking at them. The other thing we need to know that's very critical in terms of overall class two treatment is, is this a growing patient or a non-growing patient? Our largest single opportunity to fix any type of class two is largely due to growth of the patient. When you have a non-growing adult patient, your ability to significantly change that occlusion is very limited. You don't have a lot of options. It's growth and development on a growing patient that is gonna give us the best opportunity to correct and treat these class twos regardless of what the appliance is. So right away, if I have a patient who's interested in doing orthodontics, I wanna assess, do we have a dental problem, skeletal problem? Is this a growing patient or a non-growing patient? Because that's gonna shape the conversation that we're gonna have with them about the ability to treat the case. And then we can do, in our clinical exam, we can look at the molar relationship as we look in and we can say, okay, is this you know, just very mild class two? In other words, it's not a perfect class one fit where the mesial buccal cusp is in the central groove of the lower first molar, where it's just a slight rotation? Or is this something much more severe where we've got a full step class two where the upper molar is significantly ahead of the lower molar? As orthodontists like to talk about this, we generally try to break it down into kind of mild, moderate, and severe. Those are the terms we'll use, but at some point you've got to put some numbers to it. And so just for the sake of our presentation today, we're going to call kind of a mild anywhere zero to three millimeters of correction between both arches. We're not talking about all just the upper arch moving backwards. 
or the lower teeth moving forward, but the combination of those. And then we've got moderate, and then we've got severe. So today, when I'm talking about it, just think of it as mild, moderate, and severe. So those are the numbers that I'm going to put to that. Well, let's talk about correction. And again, I emphasize correction because if you're talking about correcting to a class 1 molar relationship, and when you talk about um, class 1, class 2, class 3, that's really one component of all the diagnostic factors, and it really is specifically talking about the molar relationship only. You know, when you say something is a class 1, class 2, class 3, there's a whole lot of aspects of that that come to your mind, you know, excess overjet, uh, kind of a, a re retronathic mandible, things like that. But what we're really doing, when you say class 1, it's the molar relationship only. And so what I'm going to tell you, when you see class 2 correction, where you're going to do complete correction, you know, I can tell you right away looking at this chart, aligners don't correct skeletal problems. They don't collect, correct skeletal problems in teenagers, they don't correct skeletal problems in adults. So we know that that particular type of patient, when you're looking at the exam, aligners in terms of getting full correction is not something that we're going to get. Now, you can certainly get correction on both growing and non-growing patients when the molar relationship is very mild. You know, as we saw from some of the earlier presentations and some things I'm going to talk about today that you need to make sure that you do on class 2 treatment or ClinChecks, you can certainly improve a very mild class 2 with Invisalign with elastics and some IPR and things like that to get full correction. So this zone we're certainly not worried about at all. I think the area where you have a lot of decisions to make on, on the ability of the aligners to do it is kind of in that moderate zone. Uh, and obviously in the more severe, which tends to be when you're more severe, you're also more of a skeletal problem than you are a dental problem then we know aligners by themselves are probably not going to be the choice for that if you're talking about complete correction. All right, and again, I am not going to have the debate right now about extraction versus non-extraction. Yes, one of the treatments for class 2 is to take out two upper first bicuspids. I'm not going to include that today as part of the discussion, but that's where you don't correct the molar relationship, but you do make significant changes. We're just going to say right now that's not, that's not what this discussion is about. So when you first start looking at the case and you're trying to decide, the first thing that you need to make a decision as a clinician is, does the class 2 really need to be corrected? So just because they have a class 2, we go right back to that prioritized treatment list and those objectives, and yes, we can inform and tell the patient, this isn't the ideal occlusal fit of these teeth. You know, the question the patient often will ask us, and they'll say back, is does it really matter? You know, does it matter that those aren't class one? And so that goes right to the point of, does it need to be corrected? Well, one of the leading, uh, you know, the editor of the American Journal of Orthodontics and Dental Facial Orthopedics, uh, probably one of the top speakers in the country for um, orthodontists is Dr. Vince Kokich out of Washington. And he puts it very simply, you know, the difference between a growing and non-growing patient is the non-growing patient has a dental history. And that makes all the difference in the world. You may have an adult patient that is non-growing and they'll have a 25-year history when you look in their mouth that has no periodontal problems, no breakdown of teeth. You know, they're showing absolutely no signs of having any problems with a class 2 malocclusion. Does that class 2 malocclusion need to be corrected? The answer is no. That does not need to be the number one top priority because they have a dental history that shows 
they are working very well with a class two malocclusion. Now on the other hand, what this is inferring is that for the adolescent patients, the teenagers, we have an opportunity to transform the rest of their dental history by actually trying to address that class two and correcting it with growth modification. So when we're trying to address does the class two need to be corrected, I'm gonna tell you in a growing patient, a teenager, almost always the answer for us is that's gonna be significantly high on the priority list that we are going to try to address that. On a non-growing adult patient, I'm gonna tell you that's not significantly high on the priority list unless they have a dental history that suggests that needs to be addressed because of periodontal issues, because of tooth breakdown, any other issues that, that we know is part of their dental history. So this is really a, a pretty important thing. So right away you can say, should I be treating class twos in my practice? And I'm gonna tell you absolutely you should be treating class twos in your practice because not every class two needs to be corrected. You can do a significant amount of good for a lot of your patients, adult patients specifically, by addressing the other issues that need to be addressed when the class two is telling you it, 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 it's not the number one priority that needs to be fixed. As an example, I will give you this patient, you know, 65 year old school teacher, um, excellent school teacher by the way, taught math and calculus. Um, and she came in, and this is obviously very old Invisalign, and I picked it out specifically because it's very old Invisalign, uh, but it demonstrates the point better than anybody. You know, she came in and she said, you know, I am not gonna wear those braces things, and when I found out that this Invisalign was available, she said, I have wanted to fix my teeth my whole life. You know, well, you clearly look at this, and her number one concern was the way the teeth looked, um, the bad aesthetics, and the overjet. You know, did she sit down and say, you know, I have a really bad class two malocclusion that's bothered me my whole life? No, I mean, could care less what I call it. You know, what she wants is straight teeth and reduction in the overjet. That's what she wants. What I wanna do is improve her periodontal health, set her up so that she can have great restorative treatment. There's a lot of it that needs to be done and she can keep her teeth the rest of her life. So this is back in the old days, treatment planning. I do diagnostic mounted models on every one of my cases. I still do it today. Um, but when I was first doing Invisalign, I wasn't so good at looking at it visually. I still wanted a model. So I literally sat down and wrote on the models and decided where I was gonna put attachments and how much IPR I was gonna do. So I, I think this was around 2002, 2003 when I did this. And this is where you'll really see how old it was. It's been a long time, I think, since anybody's seen one of these charts. Uh, but yes, I really did. I went back in there and I did one millimeter of IPR between all these teeth because she had horizontal bone loss, she had great crown size, uh, she had all the parameters that were needed to eliminate a lot of crowding. And remember, the goal here is for me to reduce the overjet significantly. So the way I'm gonna do that is gonna be by doing a lot of IPR, not only to eliminate crowding, but wear the class two elastic. So very early on, uh, you know, long before there was such a thing as an optimized attachment, you know, I had her wear a series of aligners and we're wearing class two elastics. So the class two elastics are important because everywhere I go between the teeth and the upper arch, what happens is when you create a space between the teeth, you know, the teeth aren't smart. You can look in the ClinCheck and you can see 
that the upper teeth move back and the posterior teeth don't move forward, but the teeth don't know what the ClinCheck said. What the teeth know is that the plastic in that area where you did the IPR, you put in the next aligner, the plastic got smaller. So where the plastic got smaller, there's equal pressure on the front and back to close that space. So regardless of what the ClinCheck shows, what I needed to happen is everywhere I made a space between the teeth on the upper arch, I needed some sort of pressure pulling the anterior teeth back if I were going to get rid of that overjet. So it's a class two elastic is what we use, and we'll talk more about that. But here we are when the patient's treatment is completed. And again, I don't show this as an example of a perfectly treated case. Lord knows I wouldn't walk this into an, you know, an orthodontic meeting where you know, we're grading models and all that and say this is a perfectly treated case. You know, had I had optimized attachments on upper cuspids and lower cuspids like we do now, I would have completely corrected the cuspid rotations. It would look much better. But as was pointed out in the previous lecture, you know, I have a patient who I've absolutely met her prioritized treatment goals. I've met my prioritized treatment goals. This is very acceptable treatment. This is not class two correction, but it's class two treatment. So when you look at it and say, you know, should I be offering class two treatment to the adults in my practice? The answer is absolutely yes, you should. It should not be looked at as something like, you know, wow, I don't think I should do that. Um, Looking at the CEF, we can see the amount of overjet reduction that we had. She's a pretty high angle case. We look at this, and, and yes, we've got her back to where her anterior teeth touch. She's ready to have her restorative treatment done and, and be completed, but you know, a very successful case. So let's take another one, and it's very much the same issue. You know, I have a patient who comes to me, um, has missing a lower left first molar. He's had some uh, arch collapse, some spacing. His primary concern was aesthetics and what he calls overbite, but we all know that everybody calls overjet overbite. You know, any patient that walks into my practice and says, well, I've got a bad overbite, and I'm like, really? Okay, so I know in my head it's a bad overjet is the main thing they're concerned with. So I've just been told by the patient, you know, he didn't sit down and say, I've got a wicked class two that you need to correct. You know, he said, I've got bad aesthetics and I've got some overjet. Is that something that Invisalign can treat? Absolutely, Invisalign can treat that in your practice. So this is a patient that we do, again, a pretty significant amount of IPR due to the horizontal bone loss and the, and the uh, reduction in the height of the gingiva. He's got enormous shaped teeth, so I've got lots of opportunity to do the IPR. So we do the IPR, and he wears class two elastics. In addition, what did I do to help me reduce the overjet? I increased the ponic tooth size of the lower left first molar so that we had some proclination of the lower anterior teeth. But again, the goal in this when I sat down was never turn this into a class one perfect cuspid relationship. The goal is meet the prioritized treatment objectives and then give them a functional stable occlusion. Those are the goals. And is that something that we can do with Invisalign? Absolutely. You know, this is a moderate amount of correction of the canine relationship to what I would call from a full step class two to a end on cuspid relationship. I find that when I leave the cuspids like that, I absolutely do need to go in and do some occlusal adjustment on these because the width of that upper canine in a buccal lingual direction does not fit well right on top of the lower left cuspid. So a lot of times we do go in on these and do occlusal adjustments so that that cuspid doesn't end up getting pushed back out over a retentive period because of sitting right on top of that lower cuspid. But yes, we absolutely treated this patient um, 
and met what they were looking for out of their treatment. So I look at it this way. If you're talking about using clear aligners and you're not focused on correcting the class two, you can treat a whole myriad of patients. You can treat dental problems, you can treat skeletal problems, you can treat specifically that non-growing patient that has a severe molar relationship that doesn't fit, or the mild, but still, you're only going to move the molars a very small amount. You know, you're not going to do a ton of correction on this, but you can certainly do some correction on these. So let's look at some more treatment objectives. Can class two correction be achieved with clear aligners? So now we're going to move to focusing specifically on the molar relationship. You know, can we correct the class two molar relationship with the clear aligners? We know we can do some of the other things. Let's look at this. Well, certainly we're not in the realm of looking at skeletal problems. We're still looking at somebody that has more of a dental problem than a skeletal problem. This probably includes patients in both growing and non-growing groups. The molar relationship is definitely going to be more on the mild side, not on the severe side. But how much can we really correct? That's the question. Somebody comes in and they need correction of the molar relationship. Where are you going to be, feel comfortable telling them, this is what I can do with clear aligners? So that's the question we want to answer. So to do that, you have to understand, how do you correct a class two? What are, what, what are the things that you can do with tooth positioning and tooth movement? You can put this in your ClinCheck. Some of it is ClinCheck related. Some of it is just related to the aligners themselves, and I'll try to explain that. Uh, but this is kind of the key things you need to understand of what, what you can get out of your aligners. Just as was pointed out in the lecture prior to this one, one of the key components to, to making very mild correction and the first step in any ClinCheck is to have the upper first molar uh, rotate distally and distalize at the same time. So when you rotate the buccal cusps, mesial out, distal in, and you rotate those back, you get some distalization. That's the absolute key component that you have to have in your ClinChecks if you're going to have any hope of getting some of this. It's the easiest, most predictable thing you can have, and we'll be looking at that. How else can you get class two correction? Well, you've got to apply interarch forces to do this. Now, when I say you have to, that's my opinion. You're, you may hear from somebody else that says, well, you can do this. But remember, you're trying to put everything in best your favor as you can to get this corrected. And certainly when you look at a ClinCheck and you watch it play, if you put on the superimposition and you see all the teeth in the upper arch moving backwards, there has to be a force somewhere that applies that or causes that to happen. I call it the ClinCheck magic. You know, you can tell the technician to do anything you want them to do, and they can do that, but, but you have to understand it for what it is. You know, if you're looking at a whole upper arch go backwards in a ClinCheck, that's ClinCheck magic. That there's, there's no forces that do that. So you have to create a force somewhere that does that. That means using elastic. So it's an integral part of any class two correction is applying elastics. Now, how you apply the elastics, whether you use precision cuts or you, you want to use the buttons or whatever you'd like to use, that's more of an academic argument over which one's better. I'm just going to say I think it's absolutely necessary that you use it. You, you can use whichever form of it you want. 
So remember in my chart, I had mild correction, moderate correction, and we're talking about zero to three millimeters or three to five, and we're talking about co total correction between both arches. Well, there's upper arch distalization, which is rotation and distal movement of the molars. You can get some lower molar movement moving mesially if you'll incorporate some IPR in the lower arch. It's another way to cheat and get a little bit of molar movement forward. Again, that's going to happen as a function of wearing your inner arch elastics. It doesn't happen just because the ClinCheck shows it. There has to be a force that's actually moving those molars forward. Now, this is one of the things that is, that is inherent to the Invisalign appliance itself, and it's the vertical control that you get or the intrusion of the posterior teeth, however you want to talk about it. When a patient wears two pieces of plastic between their posterior teeth, and this is an adult patient or a uh, growing patient, uh, teen, adolescent, one of the key components that is kind of the silent thing working in your behalf on class two correction is you're not allowing vertical eruption of the posterior teeth. It's kind of like a gelb splint. That is a huge factor in growing patients if you can prevent that eruption of the posterior teeth. Now, I'm not going to try to turn you all all into, you know, this Ceph, you know, reading Cephs and all of this, but I am going to show you Cephs because you have to picture this in your mind when you're treating the patients or seeing the patients, how is this going to work? How am I magically going to get some class two correction when I didn't show any of that really in the ClinCheck? And it has to do with the fact that you're not allowing the dental alveolar complex to allow the teeth to erupt. And so I will show you that, but it is really one of the key advantages that aligners have over what I will now forever call in the rest of my practice, you know, train tracks. You know, I, I, I thought I had completely given that up in my practice, but now I know it's a, it's a, it's a much more commonly used term. So, um, but, but in braces, you know, for us, probably one of the most difficult things we try to do in our practices is control the vertical eruption of the teeth. It was the genesis of the headgear and TADS, you know, temporary anchorage devices that many in our profession have become so enamored with much of that is geared toward controlling this vertical eruption of the posterior teeth. You want to know one of the greatest things about aligners is? You get that automatically without even trying. You put two pieces of plastic between the patient's posterior teeth. You can actually have the patient do squeezing exercises, tell them to bite into the aligners. You heard that this morning. All great things for a growing patient because it prevents the eruption of the posterior teeth. And when I show you some cefts, we'll demonstrate that a little bit. But nonetheless, a very key component to how the class two is going to be corrected is controlling this vertical eruption of the posterior teeth. And here's the kicker. It's really number four and five combined together where you get your largest correction. So out of all the rotation and all the elastics you're wearing, all of that is really great. You want to know how you're going to get the most class two correction? It's the combination of number four and number five. You're going to keep the posterior teeth from erupting. You have a growing patient where the mandible's growing. That allows the mandible to scoot forward in relation to the maxilla and the cranial base. That's how you get class two correction. Now, I'm going to show you some of this in CEPHs, and again, not trying to, to turn you into, you know, the, you know, this CEPH guru or anything, but when you understand the concept, you'll understand how important it is in your ClinChecks to make sure you see the right things done. So let's talk about ro molar rotation and distalization. So one of the very simplest things, and these two often go hand in hand, and that is 
you know, an upper molar that, and this is an eruption problem, right? When we talked about etiology, this is an eruption problem. This happened as the teeth were erupting, the pressure environment caused the teeth to erupt. We've got an upper arch asymmetry where the left molar is significantly rotated mesially, taking up space, causing that left side occlusion to be end on class two. Well, the treatment for that is obviously to back that up. So in the ClinCheck, you make sure that your ClinCheck shows that molar rotating back distally. And again, you can do it more than this. This is, this is not something where it's overdone at all, but the concept is there. You have to have that molar rotating mesial out, distal in. And those are the notes that I write to my technician. I said, make sure the molar rotates mesial out, distal in, on any time we're trying to correct these cases. And then on top of that, you add class two elastic. So how are we gonna get class two correction in this particular patient? Well, we're gonna build maxillary molar rotation and distalization into the ClinCheck. So that's something that needs to be there. We're gonna plan in the use of class two elastics. That also augments it. And I'll show that to you. And in this particular case, there is no IPR called for in the lower arch. So this is gonna be an all upper arch correction. Now here's the two things that you have no control with. This is all inherent of the age of the patient being a growing patient. And then in the ClinCheck, not showing extrusion of the upper molars, but letting them stay on the same occlusal plane, we've got vertical control, not allowing the posterior teeth to erupt, and we've got a growing patient. Two huge things in your favor to get this corrected. So if we look at just the rotation alone, and on the ClinCheck, looking at the symmetry that we're going to gain back most of it, we would expect about this amount of correction. However, clinically, because I had the patient wearing class two elastics, I was able to maybe get a little bit more than that. You know, this isn't an exact one-to-one -one layover, but if anything, the elastics are going to augment or make the correction that you get from the rotation distalization more effective and better. So when you're talking about class two correction, you know, what I'm going to urge you is don't hesitate on the elastics. I mean, it really is a key part of this. It takes what you see in the ClinCheck and it makes it even more effective. So let's look at a completely treated case and because there's a couple of ways you can do this when you're talking about moving upper molars distally. So it's rotating the molars distally. You can distal tip them a little bit. Um, this is a 15-year-old patient. And I don't know about you, but you know, every 15-year-old patient that's in high school that sits down in my practice is a model. You know, so we all model. Um, so therefore, you can almost pretty much assume that you know, we don't want braces, we want Invisalign, and that's exactly the case here. Um, looking at her, if you walked into the room, now don't look at the teeth, but if you just walked into the room and looked at her, Hopefully, you look at that face, you're going class two. Like, I'm walking in the room, I'm going, oh my God, here we go. Class two, class two, class two. But I look in dentally, and I, and I do the clinical exam, and I go, hey, this isn't so bad. Well, in her dental history, guess what? She was an Army brat. I live right outside of San Antonio, Texas, so we've got a big military complex there. Her dad was in the military in Germany, and she was treated with a functional orthopedic appliance for two and a half years when she was in Germany. So what we have is what I call, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing. She probably really was a full-step class two, but she's kind of been treated during the optimum time to treat her during a period when she was doing her most growing, 
and she got some good positive benefit out of that. She's got a very weak class one occlusion now, um, but man, I look at her face, and I'm, lo I'm looking at this, and I'm going, man, I have all sorts of opportunities to screw that up. That's what I look at. When I see that, I go, I, you know, probably the worst thing I could do for her is put braces on her teeth because the first thing that's going to happen when I put braces on her teeth is her upper anterior teeth are going to go whoop and the vertical eruption of the posterior teeth. Now, you're telling me I'm going to talk this girl, 15-year-old, who aspiring model, I'm not going to say model, aspiring model, you know, am I, am, am I going to talk her into wearing a headgear 24 hours a day? Do I want to sit down and talk to him about putting tads in your mouth so that we can anchor everything down and not let that vertical eruption occur? No, those are not discussions we want to have. I mean, I sat down with her and she's like, well, I'm here because I want to do Invisalign, and I'm like, you got it, because uh, this is the only thing that I can think of that works for me, not against me. It's going to, by her biting into the plastic, I've at least got a chance to control that vertical eruption. So, the way this ClinCheck was set up is I did everything I could think of to treat the class two. So we've got maxillary molar rotation and distalization. I'm sequentially doing the distalization. I've got her wearing class two elastics. The only thing that I'm not doing is I'm not doing any IPR in the lower arch. I don't think that was necessary. What the aligners are going to give me is the vertical control of the posterior teeth, and I'm hoping she may have a little bit of growth left. If she does, great. If she doesn't, great. The thing that I like about this is I'm probably not going to make her look worse. By using Invisalign, I'm probably not going to make her look worse. I'm probably going to make her look better, I'm hoping. So, can you do this sequential distalization that you were looking at, and when do we start class two elastics? Well, I'm going to go back one more time. Sorry. Now, as this is playing, when I started the class two elastics was once the molars got back. So once the molars were back and then the bicuspid started moving, that's when the class two elastics go on and they're worn continually throughout the rest of treatment. So think about this. The teeth aren't smart. The teeth just do what the plastic tells them to do. So right now, the plastic is telling them push the molars back. There's more anterior roots in the bone than there are posterior roots, so the posterior roots lose out and they move backwards. So from the point that we start the bicuspids moving back, what the plastic is saying is I'm closing up the space between the molars and premolars. So even though the ClinCheck shows the molar teeth just sitting there just fine, well, I've moved those back, so that's great. Now we're going to go move these. The teeth don't know that. What the teeth know is that the plastic between the premolars and the molars is getting smaller each time, and so it's trying to just pull the molars right back forward. You have to start the class two elastics at this point. If you don't do the class two elastics, what you're going to end up with is two beautifully straightened arches, but there's going to be absolutely no correction in the AP at all. So class two elastics are critical for this type of treatments, moving them back. So, can you create those spaces? Absolutely. I mean, the one thing that the aligners do ab very well, perfectly, I would almost say, that's a little bit strong of a word, is they control the perimeter. If you've got somebody who's wearing their aligners exactly as you tell them, you increase the arch perimeter, you create the spaces, they'll do that. You close the, get rid of the crowding, and do, they'll do that. So, no surprise at all that I can take photos that overlay exactly what the ClinCheck is. So we go from starting the aligners to finishing, and this is absolutely class two correction. Now you would think, by looking at the photos that we've taken, 
that I just distalized the daylights out of this. You know, I moved those molars way back and I moved those front teeth way back and we did get a nice correction on this. What we do to check how the class two was corrected is we really kind of have to look at the CEF and say, okay, which one of these things worked in our favor for us? What did I do the most of? Well, you can look at a composite overall, which really doesn't tell you near as much as looking at what happened in the upper arch and what happened in the lower arch. And so even though I had big giant gaps where I was thought I was pushing those molars way back, but then there's pressure pulling them back forward and we're trying to counteract that with wearing the elastics, when you actually see what happened, what you see is that I turned the molars back a little bit. I mean, it's not earth shattering. It's certainly no two or three millimeters like the gaps I had between the molars and premolars, but I probably rotated the molars back and I probably tipped them back a little bit both very common things that you should be able to do. What happened that was really good was the vertical control of the posterior teeth coupled with the fact that she grew. So when she grew, that made the lower jaw move forward just a little bit more and I got a lot of that correction that I'm sitting here thinking I'm doing it all by moving teeth. What really got me that correction was the fact that I had excellent vertical control and I had mandibular growth. So the amount of molar distalization that we got with the aligners, you know, while it's there and it's measurable, it's not the thing that caused this class two to be corrected. Does it need to be put in the ClinCheck? Absolutely. You have to put the molar rotation in. You have to distal tip them a little bit. You have to wear the class two elastics, but still what got this completely corrected was the fact that we had a growing patient. And so this is how much rotation we're talking about. I think just as Ben described it earlier very well, we look at the way the buccal cusps are lined up on the maxillary arch and the molar rotation puts that buccal cusp alignment all the way outside the point that he talked about, which is the buccal surface of the cuspid. Um, so that is the rotation and distalization. Certainly class two elastics were a part of this vertical control and growth. And so in your mind, when you're talking about if you have one that you're trying to correct, that means teen patients. You know, if you're really looking at prioritized treatment objective, I need to correct the class two, the opportunity for you to get the best possible chance of correcting that is going to be having those last two things work for you. That's a teen patient. You know, that's somebody that still has a little bit of growth left. So that movement was segmental movement. It's a lot of aligners. It's not the most highly uh, productive thing you can do in terms of aligners. It was 57 aligners in the upper arch and then there were like 17 case refinement aligners. That's a lot of aligners to be delivering and monitoring over a long period of time. So that's one method that you can do that distalization. You can also do the same movement all at the same time because remember, even though I distalized those and segmentally went back, when you go back and you look at the CEF, did I move the teeth back three and a half millimeters? No. So what I really did is I rotated them back and I tipped them back a little bit. Well, you can do that same movement with what we call simultaneous staging where you get to watch the ClinCheck magic, it all does it at the same time, but you've got to still in your mind understand how you're getting the correction. You're getting it from the rotation of the molars, a little bit of distal tipping, class two elastics, and then the vertical growth. So here's another patient that comes in, she's heading off to college, wants to get her overjet taken care of and the alignment of her upper front teeth. 
She is young enough that I would say at her age, yes, it is a priority of mine to try to get her occlusion as close to class one as we can. Here's the ClinCheck playing. So you can get the idea of two things. One, we do have a pretty significant overjet that we need to take care of. And two, you can see all the teeth moving back at the same time. Now, when you see a ClinCheck that does that, please understand this is ClinCheck magic. You know, there is no force anywhere applied to that upper arch that's moving all 14 of those teeth backwards. That does not happen. That, there has to be a force attached to even make that partially happen. That's elastics. You know, you can, you know, if you want to get crazy, tads and things like that, but it's just elastics. You know, so you can put elastics. That's the backwards driving force, simultaneous tooth movement. So here's her final result. And she gets uh, much closer to what I would call ideal correction. So we had 27 initial aligners, much shorter treatment time because of the simultaneous movement of teeth. When you do that segmental movement, you're going to be looking at very long treatment plans. We did do a case refinement, six aligners. I changed those aligners out weekly at that time. Her total treatment time was 16 months, and she's very happy with that. Well, let's go and see how did the class two correct. Well, the class two corrected and the overjet corrected by having good vertical control of the posterior teeth. We had almost no growth, um, but we were able to, to wear the elastics, close up the spaces in the upper arch. And what the upper uh, incisor shows you is that I just tipped the upper incisor back. I just changed the angulation of the incisor. So that's really how I corrected her overjet. So we did have a little bit of molar rotation and distalization. Elastics played a significant part in this. And we had good vertical control of the posterior teeth. So again, that's inherent in the aligners themselves, which is one of the reasons I'm very high on, on doing class two treatment with the aligners. I do not have a super large pool of adult, non-growing patients that I can show you um, this type of treatment, but Sam Dar in Vancouver, BC, has done a lot and lectured quite a bit on molar distalization and class two correction. And he did a study in, that he presented at our summit in 2008, and I think he also presented at last year's summit 2012 on class two correction. And what he shows with his cephalometric measurements is very much what I'm telling you right now. The amount of distalization he's getting when he measures it is one to two millimeters. So two millimeters predictably in the upper arch, you couple that with possibly doing some IPR on the lower arch, and you're still very comfortably correcting class twos, but in that mild category we're talking about. So when we're talking about class two correction, the correction that, that Sam is showing, and I think he has the best data that I've seen out there, it's in that mild category. So when you're talking to your adult non-growing patients, how much class two correction can you expect to get? You can expect to get a little bit. I mean, it's in the mild category but I wouldn't be promising anything in the you know, moderate, more severe because you don't have a growing patient. That's the thing that's hurting you. If they were growing, it's a different story. You've got probably better opportunities. So I've just sat here and harped and harped and harped on how important elastics are. So let me show you somebody who treated one with no elastics. So this is Ken Fisher. He's a clinical advisory board doctor. Has a uh, large Invisalign practice in Southern California. And so the key thing that, that I noted on the case he shared with me was this is an adolescent patient, so by now you know, hopefully they're growing, that's going to be a good thing. He did aligners only, did not use class two elastics. 
So he took this patient, which is kind of an end-on, I would call this one of our mild corrections, and he treated it through a series of aligners and case refinement, and then we look at the results of what he got. And when you look at the results, you see almost no upper molar distalization. You see a little bit of the lower molar moving forward. I'm trying to remember if I did this on the last slide. Sorry, I'm going to jump ahead real quick. Yeah. So this is where you can see the amount of correction he got. The lower molar not erupting much, the upper molar not erupting much. But if you'll notice the top of the condyle, the patient was adolescent and they grew. So let's go back to the grid where I talked to you about what components correct a class 2. He had very little maxillary molar rotation, but there was a little bit there. He did not wear elastics. He did get some mesial molar movement just from the tooth positioning and the IPR that he did. The vertical control of the posterior teeth was there, and he had mandibular growth. So in a, in a way, I can tell you he did it, but he put himself against the eight ball not by, just by not adding the elastics and doing it with it. So sometimes you have patients like that. You'll prescribe the elastics, and they just won't wear them. And so when they don't do that, you've still got the same thing. It doesn't mean that you can't get the correction, but, but understand what got the correction was largely this was a growing patient. You know, it's, it, they grew well for him. Uh, Jay Bowman, another kind of a noted lecturer, uh, talking about orthodontic appliances and molar distalization. You know, at some point what you do is you, you interrupt the patient during growth and development and you take upper incisors I mean, upper molars, and you kind of just unlock them and you get them back into the right position. The patient continues to grow, and that's really what you're doing. It's like a marching band. You know, you do anything to unlock the occlusion. With a growing patient, sometimes you'll get lucky, but if you just use elastics or something else, you're going you're gonna to help yourself do that. So when we're talking about class 2 correction, certainly we're looking at patients that have more dental than skeletal problems, you can do probably growing, both growing and non-growing patients, but your biggest advantage is going to be on the growing patient. Uh, the molar relationship is probably going to be mild, and I feel very comfortable saying, yes, we can get mild molar correction on those type patients. The question is, what about the ones that are kind of in this moderate range? Because we certainly have those showing up in our practice. You know, what do we do about those? Um, so if aligners alone aren't the things that we're going to be using, you know, we kind of say, what else can we use in our toolbox to possibly help us do this? Um, there are a couple of published articles. Orthodontists love gadgets, if you hadn't figured that out. You probably, when your patients come in and you see them on hygiene visits, if you don't just go, oh my God, what did they put in your mouth? You know, that, we, we, we love gadgets. And, and the nice thing is, you know, most of us are pretty bashful and they don't like to put their name on it. So... If you haven't noticed that, the first thing they do is they invent something and then they name it their name and you know, try to get it out there to use that. Well, this Mara appliance is one of those. There's just a myriad of molar distalizing appliances out there that can kind of do that jump I was talking about. So this is one, a Mara appliance. But look at this. You know, he did 15 months of this fancy appliance and then he went in and did Invisalign following that. And in the Invisalign ClinCheck setup, I actually looked at it and I saw mesial molar rotation, which means he probably overdid the distalization a little bit. But then I looked at the cephalometric evaluation and what had happened. He had had significant mandibular growth in both phases of treatment. So regardless of all the fancy devices he used, probably the thing that corrected the class two 
He, had, he did it on the right patient. It was a growing patient, and that was the, the good thing. Now, he got good vertical control by both of, the, both of the appliances that he used, the Invisalign and the Mara, so that's good, good treatment planning there. Um, Dr. Werner Schoop out of Germany, who does publish a lot of things, does some very interesting and complex treatment in Germany. Uh, he's one of those guys that I try to read everything I can that I see he has his name on. He did a carrier distalizer, followed that up with class two treatment, and in his uh, words, he said, you know, treatment of class two patients with Invisalign is virtually impossible without addition of elastic anchorage. That's the take-home message that I want to give to you is don't be scared of using the class two elastics. You've got precision cuts in the aligners. Um, you do not have to bond buttons on the teeth if you don't want to. Use your precision cuts. I mean, they work great. That's what I use in my practice. But you've got to understand, if you're going to do any of this front-to-back correction and you're looking on the ClinCheck and you see all the teeth moving back, it's class two elastics are indicated in those patients. So I'm going to show you just one crazy complicated case that involves molar distalization and expansion. So there's an appliance called a distal jet, and I modified it some to call it a simple jet. And it looks like this. We've got somebody who has largely a dental problem. We need to scoot the molars back, so we do this. We put an expansion screw in the middle, and we push the molars back. I mean, there's times where, you know, we can make things just look ridiculous. Uh, but once you push those teeth back, and again, it doesn't matter what appliance you use to do this with. This is an example of one. You push it back there, and then you start trying to hang on and hold it back there and tease the other things back. And that's where all the work begins for us. So you put in something like a Nance arch like this, and then you start trying to tease the others back. Well, that's essentially what I did on this patient. I forgot to take photos of this device in her mouth, but you've at least got the idea of what was in there. She had a skeletal problem that needed to be corrected with an expander, so that was put in first with the distal jet, which moved the molars back, and then we put some segmental braces on and brought that back. The point is, she ended up, she wanted Invisalign, she ended up getting Invisalign done, and this is the point where we send off to do Invisalign. Well, at this point, Invisalign's the no-brainer. I mean, this is the class one minor crowding, which is kind of like the, the bread and butter for Invisalign. From this point, we're home free. It was all the other stuff that we used to dislize that was harder. When you look at this ClinCheck, um, nothing really drastic here. You do see that one thing that I'm telling you about. All the molar teeth, and all, all the teeth in the upper arch are moving back, so she does need to wear a class two elastics with this. Then we do a case refinement, and we finish up. So this is where she ends up finishing up, and again, this is that, you know, adolescent patient where in my prioritized treatment objectives, correction of the class two is something that we need to do. But she wants Invisalign, so this is how we accomplish that. So that is a really complicated device to use. That's not something I would expect anybody here to say, gee, I've got to go get me some of those. Let's start doing that. No. But there is a device out there that you can use that is pretty simple to use, and it's the carrier distalizer. So I mentioned it earlier, but I'm just going to show this to you so you have an, uh, an idea of what it is. But this carrier distalizer... What it does is the same thing. It just takes a group of teeth and moves them distally to get them to the point to where we can then do Invisalign, doing what Invisalign does best. So this is the type of movement that you can get, which is basically molars rotating and moving distally. You get some distal movement of the, of the entire segment between the molar and the cuspid moving back. 
This is all driven by class two elastics or what does this. And they're pretty heavy elastics. So you can use a, a clear Essex type appliance on the lower arch and wear this heavy elastic to this carrier distalizer. You can put in a fixed lower lingual arch. You can do anything you want to do to anchor the lower arch, but any, anything can work on there. Um, but you do wear the elastics full time, and this generally takes about four and a half months to do it. You just have the patient come back in each, every six weeks, and we evaluate it and make sure that they're being compliant. But if they do that, you can drive this whole segment of teeth back. So we take something like this that, that I've just said is in, in the range for what Invisalign could possibly do, but right on the cusp of being moderately difficult. And if we want to go ahead and make it something that Invisalign could do very easily, we drive these back using these elastics. So, and it does all good things that, we, that the aligners that help us with Invisalign. So you wear the rubber bands and it provides a force anteriorly so the lower incisors, if anything, are going to move forward. That's a good thing. That helps reduce your overjet. It's going to cause the mandibular molar to erupt. Most of your class twos are also deep bite, overbite cases. If the posterior teeth happen to erupt a little bit, that's probably going to be okay using this appliance. The maxillary cuspid can move down and extrude. The great thing is with aligners, the cuspids are intruding a cuspid that's over erupted and pushing it back up is, is one of the most predictable things aligners can do. It happens every time. The thing that we're looking for out of this appliance is to get this whole maxillary buccal segment to move backwards into the class one relationship as quickly as we can. So in when, again, go back to prioritize treatment objectives, when my objective is I want to get this corrected and I always want to do the hardest thing first and get it taken care of and then do the second hardest thing second and take care of it, this takes care of that. I take the hardest thing we have to do in this treatment, I get it done first. Then I move on to Invisalign, I'm doing the second hardest thing I have to do, align the teeth second in that, in that way. So, it does the molar rotation. We've talked about that today several times, how that's something that, that you need to do to correct class twos is do the molar rotation. And so here's an example of somebody who will run unilaterally. So in four and a half months, we take it from something that's an end-on molar relationship all the way past what's considered to be ideal. So we're in a perfect position now where you could go in and do everything else you needed to do with Invisalign. Yes, you can get some pretty noticeable spaces in the upper arch, but does Invisalign have any problem closing spaces? No, it's one of the most predictable appliances you can use to close spaces because you've got mesial and distal surfaces available for the aligner material to get around the tooth. You control the root movement excellently in spacing cases with aligners. Um, the nice thing is this cuspid. The cuspid, while it looks like it tips back significantly so that you would have a tooth that's not oriented correctly in your final occlusion, when you look at it very closely on the pans, what you'll see is the PDL enlarged all the way up the mesial side of the root and the angulation of the cuspid as it goes back is very slight tipping. Now, Invisalign with the root control attachments that are available now very easily handles that. So to me, of all the distalizing appliances that, that orthodontists use or are available for you to use out there, this is the simplest and easiest one to use. There's no question it can, it, can, it can do this in a way that it will get you ready to move right into Invisalign. Here's an example of a patient. This is the distalizer at T2 after four and a half months, and then there's your final. 
um, after, the, after treatment's completed. And so this is a case that if you just start out and say, hey, I'm going to do this with Invisalign only, you know, you've got some challenges. You've got a low-angle, deep-bite case that's a little bit class 2. You're going to have to have a patient that wears elastics and aligners great for the entire duration of treatment. All they had to do in this is they had to wear elastics really good for four and a half months. From that point on, when I start doing the aligners, it's just aligners only because I've already got the uh, AP corrected. The overbite correction is significant. As you know, deep overbites with aligners are sometimes uh, challenging cases. If you can wear an appliance like this and go from a deep overbite to almost no overbite, very good. Yes? So that's a good point. What do you do when you go from wearing the distalizer to getting your aligners? So if you take a PVS impression to send off to Invisalign the day you take the distalizer off, you need to do your first pour on the PVS impression, again, provided you're using high-quality PVS impression material that won't tear. Then you can make an, over, an Essex overlay that they wear at night only until they come back in to see you get their aligners delivered. I always tell the patients you must bring your retainer with you when I give you aligners because there's not going to be any of this story of, well, I left it at home and you start to put the first aligner in and it doesn't fit. And they go, well, yeah, I've been wearing it every night. And I go, no, you, you've got to go prove to me that you were wearing it. So you have to come in to get your first aligner with your retainer and show me that it fits. So it's just, it's just kind of a, you know, trust everyone but count the cards. You know, show me that you were doing what you were supposed to do. Um, but that's how we transition. So they wear it at night only, and they have to bring it with them when they're coming in. So here we are after, remember, the time between these says five and a half months, but remember the initial pan was taken a month before the Carrier Dislizer was delivered. So it's four and a half months of treatment, um, and those are the spacings that you see. Again, look at the upper cuspids and see how upright they are. You're not going to spend a lot of time in your aligners distalizing the roots, trying to get that occlusion back to where it needs to be. So here's a case we're going to run through start to finish who did this type of treatment. Again, a 15-year-old patient comes in, wants Invisalign. I want to treat her in Invisalign. However, I look at hygiene and everything, and I go, I'm not sure I've got the most compliant patient in the world. Let's test her with the uh, distalizer first and get that part of her treatment over. In addition, she's got an upper arch asymmetry, and if you're talking about something that can treat an upper arch asymmetry right off the bat, take the hardest problem and fix it first, this distalizer does that. So it gets me to class one, treats the upper arch asymmetry. Other than that, it's just a mild crowded case, which Invisalign is going to do very well. So we do this in three months' time, change your occlusion from there to there, get the asymmetry completed. At this point, we're ready to send off and have the aligners made. So here's the ClinCheck that comes back. And again, a little bit old school on the ClinCheck, but you don't see any optimized attachments. Um, but no significant movement, so that's the key. When you look at the superimposition, you know, this is not a, an Invisalign case that's not going to track well. It should track very well. So there's the staging editor. We get simultaneous tooth movement, um, no IPR, and then we go through the progress, progression of wearing the aligners. And you can say, see that she stayed very well class one throughout the whole thing. Once you've got it corrected, you've got it corrected. This is between uh, 
actually T2 and T4 in the, in when we did the final, but those vertical problems where you need to align those, you can get those corrected with the aligner. So as we tip the first molar back, it caused there to be a marginal ridge discrepancy between the first and second molar, but the aligners you can see down in uh, T4 pushed those and leveled those back out. So here she is in her final. We've got it corrected and well aligned. Now, that's a little bit longer case. They don't always have to all be that long. So again, I take somebody, I would have no problem when you look at the upper set of photos if you said, gee, I want to do that with Invisalign only and I'm going to wear class two elastics and put all of that in here. I have no problem with that. It's very appropriate here. It's something you can do. Again, my thinking was let's take the most difficult problem and fix it first. In my arsenal, I've got these distalizers, which are very easy to do. So in three months' time, I move the most difficult problem, get it corrected, and then I go back to aligners. We've got 12 upper and lower aligners. She doesn't have to wear elastics after that point, and we get that completed. And there's her final. So again, different options of doing it. I think you just need to be aware of what can the aligners do for you. And if they don't, what other, what other options do you have available? So if we're talking about correction of the class two, I think you've got the option for both growing and non-growing patients to treat a mild molar relationship and get it fully corrected. Uh, but not all of them need to be corrected. I think if you're willing to be a little more adventurous and you want to try some appliances that may give you some immediate class two correction, certainly you can step out and do some molar distalizing and then follow it up with aligners and I think have good success. No, all the, uh, well, the question is, am I worried about not being able to distalize because of the third molars? When they're, when they're barely being formed at that point, and this was an adolescent patient, they, there's going to be no effect of the distalizer moving those back because you're going to get teeth tipping and those teeth aren't down. If you had an adult with fully erupted third molars, I think it would be a completely different story. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, I don't use this appliance on adults. This is adolescence only. So this is growing patients that I do that on. Yes? So, so, uh, so the question is, am I worried about controlling the roots on the anterior teeth as I'm closing up the spaces? The answer is, for me, not at all. Because I think aligners have everything built in them to control those roots. We now have multi-plane attachments for laterals. We've got root control attachments for centrals. We've got power ridges for torque. So I think really what it is, is you've got to pay very close attention to that setup and make sure that your setup isn't just the anterior teeth tipping back, but actually the anterior teeth retracting back, maintaining the torque. And so if you, I think the aligners have all the ability in the world. And then let's throw in on top of that the new smart track material, which just is like turbocharging your, your aligners, just makes everything they do work better. I, I have no concerns about that. In fact, I've really not had a problem with that. So... So anyway, I think there's certainly opportunities for aligners to do class two correction with the aligners alone here. If you're going to be a little more adventurous, 
yes, you can use distalizing appliances and do things there. Uh, absolutely should expect good success. So in closing, kind of the points that I wanted to make for you today about class two treatment. Number one, maxillary molar rotation and distalization are very important. They're an important part of your ClinCheck. So start looking for those things, making sure that your technicians mesial out distal in rotations. I think it got mentioned in the lecture prior to me. It got lecture, mentioned in my lecture. Hopefully that's emblazoned in your mind that that's something you want to see in your ClinChecks. Elastics, if you're going to do class two treatment, are a significant part of the treatment. Um, where you put elastics, how you connect them to the teeth, what size elastics, there has been absolutely no definitive research on that so that I can tell you, oh, you have to hook them up here to here, you have to hook them up to the teeth, you have to hook them up to the liners. Anybody that gets up and with absolute says you have to do something with elastics right now, there's no research right now that supports that one way is better than the other on any of that. Let me leave you with the thought, use the elastics. Yes? Okay, the question is, do I see any difference in the lower incisor proclination if you're wearing class two elastics, whether you're hooking the elastic to the aligner itself or the tooth? And I'm gonna tell you, I have not seen a difference at all. And the other thing that I will say very positive for aligners are, number one, if you're wearing class two elastics, it's gonna be more of an effect of, of you're gonna, enhance any IPR that's done causing the posterior teeth to move forward. But in fixed appliances, when we wear class two elastics, we're wanting to see the lower incisors procline. When we get down to the end of treatment and we have overjet and we say, we're gonna start wearing elastics right at the end, we wanna see the lower incisors do that. It doesn't work that way in Invisalign. They don't do that because you're wearing a plastic that's holding them in position. Therefore, the point is, you can't throw a few elastics on right at the last four aligners and think that you're gonna get the effect of the class two elastics. You get the effect of the class two elastics by starting them early on in treatment, wearing through the course of treatment, but again, you only get the incisor position of what you put in the ClinCheck. So when you're doing your ClinCheck, if you're looking at it and you're saying, I need my lower incisors to do this so that we reduce overjet, your ClinCheck isn't gonna do that if it doesn't show it in the ClinCheck. I mean, it's not gonna happen because you're wearing elastics. Uh, so anyway, elastics are very important. You can get some mesial molar movement on the lower arch by adding some IPR. It cheats a little bit, that helps. Here's the big one. Aligners give you this just by wearing the aligners. So you get this automatically. That's a great thing for class two correction, class two patients. Not the greatest thing for 100% deep overbites. Makes it a little bit tougher but for class two correction is great. Mandibular growth favors treatment during the adolescent growth phase. Your teen patients are the ones where you're gonna have the opportunity to make the biggest change probably in class two correction. So I think that's a, you know, something for you to consider when you're seeing these patients and you look at them and you think, you know, when's the right time, when can I do it? You know, it's not waiting until you're an adult to treat your class two, I can tell you. That's not when you're gonna correct it. So anyway, I hope all of these things have been somewhat helpful. I do want, yes, I'm sorry.
regarding the carrier appliance, yes. uh, three quick questions. Uh, number one, what is the distillation that you expect each month? Uh, two is, what is the total distillation that you expect? What's your limit? And then third, how do you anchor that molar or keep it back there once you start retracting the anteriors? Okay, so the amount of movements you get each month is going to be is going to vary according to the patient, how well they wear their elastics. What I'm wanting to see is mesial to the cuspid where they're wearing the elastic to. In the first six weeks, I want to see them crack a space. In the second six weeks when they come back, I want to see a space between the lateral and the central. And then they wear it one more six-week period, and hopefully we look back in the molars and we see it overcorrected. So what I do is I want to keep them wearing it until I get the amount of correction that I want. So in my mind, most of those happen after two or three visits, most of them three, which is four and a half months. Now, how do we hold it? We hold it by making an in-house Essex-type appliance. The day we take those off, they've got to have something holding them there until they get their liners. That's absolutely critical. All right. So, anything else? Good. Am I concerned about unilateral elastic wear? No, I am not. And again, the main reason I'm not, the advantage of aligners is the vertical control. What we see in fixed appliances when you wear a unilateral elastic is you'll extrude one side and not the other. When you're wearing your aligners, you prevent that. So the one real bad thing that happens to us when we wear unilateral elastics in fixed appliances doesn't happen to us when we wear aligners. So I would say feel very free to use your elastics unilaterally with minimal to no bad effects. Yes? So I'm say that again? To the facial, to the lingual? Okay. Yes, you do. They make a shorter carrier distalizer to go to the bicuspids. The question was, if you've got a cuspid that's not accessible and you want to distalize using a distalizer, can you connect to the first bicuspid? And the answer is yes, they do make them small enough that they'll go to the first bicuspid. And again, I'll tell you online, I've got a, uh, an Ask the Expert call on the carrier distalizer, so if you want to know more about the carrier distalizer, you can find that online. Uh, I think there's a class two kit coming out shortly from Invisalign that will have carrier information in there. And again, um, I just want to let you know, yes, it's another tool. There are tons of distalizing appliances. I just happen to think that one is really simple, so that's why I like it. But uh, anyway, I want to leave you with this. Uh, um, I do have an online treatment planning service called Smile Assist, and you can access it by www.smileassist.com. The purpose of this is to provide one-on-one -on -one tutorial for ClinChecks. So if you would like help with those, that is available. And what we've enlisted are what we believe are a group of Invisalign experts. Not only experts in the number of cases they've done, but their ability to also be teachers. There's an online interactive tutorial on this website so that when you submit a case, it's not just submit it and get your clin check done, but it's you can actually submit it and then ask all the questions you want to ask. When the clin check comes back, you can say, why did you do this? Why not do that? What happens if I do this? But we realize that um, a lot of times one-on-one -on -one help is what doctors want to be able to provide better services for their patients. As a learning experience, 
and uh, we've put this up there to try to do that. So far the comments have been very positive. Uh, we have three different types of users. We have beginners who want a little hand-holding. We have experienced users who want to get better. And then we have high submitting providers who can't do the volume. <laughs> and so they go like, okay, you guys do these and then we'll just look them over and do that. But um, I appreciate you giving me a chance to come talk to you at your summit. I hope this information has been valuable to you. Um, and I want you to have continued success with Invisalign. I'm very excited about where you're going with it.